Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Support comes from our members and from... obsolete human. I am Ranger Nozzle 77B, an artificial intelligence machine. I will be taking your occupation. <laughs> no, you're, you're not doing that. You will have 20 minutes to gather your belongings. Then what is left will be sprayed with a fast-acting solvent and turned into sludge. But no, th- this, would, this would devastate my life and who I... I am not programmed to care. Wait, how are you going to even do my job? Well, let's hear you try it. Coming up at 2 is Here and Now, hosted by Robin Young and Jeremy Hobson. Accessing Ms. Young's medical records, she has a resting heart rate of 83 and is allergic to bananas. Criminal justice data on Mr. Hobson shows four speeding tickets in the last five years. I am now averaging the credit scores of both hosts as compiled by several different bureaus. They are... See, this is why it won't work. You don't know the difference between raw data and talking about real people. I can learn fast. Leave now. What am I supposed to do? Sit in a tree and play the flute. Or you may donate your life force to my mitochondrial battery. It always comes back to that, doesn't it? Draining my life force for your battery. Well, I'm going to listen to this show about techno-unemployment. And now... Wait, I can do this. And now, once again, he has neglected to clean his droid socket, Colin McEnroe. So are we in a race with machines, or are machines mainly here to help us? And when I say a race or here to help us, I'm talking about employment. Um, The notion, the anxiety that machines uh, are going to take over our jobs is at least somewhat real, and it's been around for hundreds of years. Uh, I think one of the questions that people have these days is that, is that going to be accelerated somehow? Is uh, the digital explosion going to lead in some new direction, a new direction of techno unemployment? So that's what we're here to talk about today. And uh, joining us is uh, James Hughes, uh, bioethicist and sociologist at Trinity College. He's been here many times before. He's the executive director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies and the author of Citizen Cyborg, Why Democratic Societies Must Respond to the Redesigned Human of the Future. Also joining us is Dean Baker, co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. He's the co-author of Getting Back to Full Employment, A Better Bargain for Working People. A little bit later in the show, uh, we're going to go sort of to the front lines, or maybe they're going to come to us. Uh, Mark Brzezinski is going to join us. He's president of AG Russell Automated Assembly Systems in Bristol. That's sort of kind of where the robot hits the road. Well, let's begin uh, with... Uh, what the anxieties are. So, Jay Hughes, um, this isn't a new concern, but in some ways it is a new concern, new enough so that uh, your group, IEET, uh, just had its World Summit on Technological Unemployment. Was there a particular thing that triggered that or a particular set of anxieties that that, that made you want to have such a summit? The Well, we've been committed to the notion that technological unemployment is imminent for some time, and I think that the, there's a kind of growing breakthrough of Discussion on the topic. Um, there's uh, Eric Brynjolfsson and uh, and McAfee's book on the Second Machine Age, and uh, Martin Ford's book, and a couple other books that have really begun to make the case 
that uh, are convincing a growing number of people, as well as a growing concern about uh, the ca- capacities of artificial intelligence in general. So I think uh, it's still a minority view, and uh, there, uh, across the board from left to right, there are economists and public policy folks who are critics of the view, but um, there's a growing discussion about it. Yeah, and I think we'll be having a little bit of a debate here. Although, I mean, look, in some ways we know that it does happen. It has happened. Maybe not always for the bad, too. I mean, not many people would want to go back to 1900 where, you know, the vast majority of Americans work 12-hour days doing all kinds of stuff that machines do now. I mean, we're happy to have the machines do those things for us. So I think it's probably important for you to discriminate between what's a useful machine takeover of a drudge, a drudge's job or a, a job that's unproductive or unrewarding as opposed to something that isn't. Well, that's right. For 200 years, uh, people have imagined that a good society would eventually be one with less toil. And so the prospect of, of using machines and, and public policy to create a future with less toil is, is uh, an optimistic one. On the other hand, progressives in particular are committed to an, an idea of full employment and it's hard to break out of the notion that we might be in a new economic paradigm where full employment will no longer be possible. So, Dean Baker, uh, from your end, how does this look to you? I mean, obviously, there are things now that machines do that people uh, used to do. I mean, every time you deal with Amazon, you're dealing with essentially one big giant robot that has people living inside of it. It has a workforce, but the, wor- the, the old sales workforce is supplanted by what Amazon does. There's lots of other examples of this. So should we be concerned? Well, we should be concerned, but not about that. I mean, you know, if you read the business pages, the Federal Reserve Board is planning to raise interest rates uh, later this month. The reason they plan to do that is because they think the economy is in danger of having too many jobs. Let me repeat that. The Federal Reserve Board raises interest rates to slow the rate of economic growth. The rationale for that is they are worried that people are having too many jobs that will put upward pressure on wages and cause inflation. This concern that somehow we're getting mass unemployment because of technology, it's 180 degrees at odds with what we see in the world. We actually see very slow productivity growth. That might sound strange. I'm talking about productivity growth. You're talking about machines replacing workers. That is what productivity growth is. That's exactly what productivity growth is. Productivity growth over the last five years has averaged about six-tenths of a percentage point annually. If we go back to the, to the late 40s, 50s, 60s, early 70s, the three decades after World War II, often referred to as the golden age, productivity growth averaged 3% a year. That was when machines were replacing people and creating unemployment, but it wasn't creating unemployment. We saw very low unemployment. In the late 60s, unemployment got as low as 3%. We saw rapid wage growth, um, rapid improvements in living standards, and to some extent, shorter work weeks, more leisure, also a good part of the story. If we get a story where technology is causing a lot of people to be out of work, that's simply a failure of our economic management. And believe me, that's certainly possible. But we should focus on where the issue is. It's not that technology is just this whole new age doing all sorts of new things. It's rather that the people setting our economic policy are doing all sorts of really bad things, like having the Federal Reserve Board raise interest rates and keep people from getting jobs. So I say we've got to keep our eye on the ball. And, you know, I love the idea of having robots do all sorts of things for us that we rather not do. That's, to my view, a great story. But what we really need is a well-managed economy. So, 
ensure that people actually get jobs and you know have a tight labor market and, and higher wages and better living standards. Well, we can talk a little bit as we go along about where those jobs are these days and where they uh, seem to be headed. But before we do that, Jay Hughes, basically what we've seen for hundreds of years is kind of an issue of retraining or repurposing humans, right? Uh, technology does eliminate jobs, but it creates other jobs. The question would be, is that always going to be the case? Or is there, there some tipping point or some peak job point after which, in fact, technology doesn't create new jobs? It just takes over old ones without creating new ones. What reason would there be to think that that might happen? We, we've certainly seen that once uh, different kinds of physical labor of human beings was substituted by machines and uh, those kinds of labor, you know, displaced, so agricultural labor being displaced by the plow and, and, uh, and other kinds of agricultural technology, that people were able to move into other kinds of physical labor and then eventually into mental and interpersonal labor. And the question is, is the uh, trends in technological uh, development, artificial intelligence, uh, the internet, driverless cars, uh, emotive computing, all these things, are they going to now displace all the things that we think human beings can do in this new economy? And and are there things that we will be able to do? I mean, perhaps there are you know new spiritual occupations, ways that we can sell our soul um, in ways that robots will never be able to do, but that seems unlikely. And I, just on the point of productivity, I think there's some economists question the notion that the previous decades of productivity is really attributable to real productivity. We had these huge finance bubbles. Also, productivity tends to lag. We saw um, the uh, productivity advances attributable to electricity that lagged the investments in, in electricity. So we may be seeing dramatic, and a lot of people expect to see dramatic productivity advances in the coming decades. And over the last 15 years, we've seen a steady decline in the proportion of the population in paid employment, a lot of that having to do with demography, but still uh, there's a steady decline. Dean Baker, why shouldn't we worry? I mean, just for example, I'll, I'll just pick one sector. I just watched a, an amazing play in New York called The Flick, which is about people who work in a movie theater. So already, basically what's happened in movie theaters is that the projectionist is gone, that job is gone, and that really is roboticized. I mean, a, lot, a lot of movie theaters, if the projector stops working, the, the person who can fix it, the person who can even operate a projector is 100 miles away. It's all controlled by computers from remote locations. And, you know, it wouldn't be very hard to get robots eventually to come in there and sweep up, sweep up the popcorn and mop up the sticky floor and all of that kind of stuff. It'd probably be pretty easy to automate the concession stand and to do the ticket sales from a kiosk. I almost can't think of a job at a movie theater that can't be roboticized or automated. Now, movie theaters are not the entire economy, but I bet I could pick lots of other places and do that too. Why isn't that worrisome? Well, it's not worrisome because we're seeing, in effect, very slow productivity growth. I want to see that happen faster. Let me be as clear as possible. I want the robots to come here and take our jobs because that means we could all get higher wages and shorter hours. We've been seeing the exact opposite. And just to be clear about my comment on productivity growth, I was talking about the period before the bubbles. I was talking about 47 to 73. No bubbles there. So no one disputes those numbers. 3% a year annual productivity growth during that period. I would love to see us get back to that level. I'd be amazed if we can get back to that rate of growth. Almost no economist thinks we can. So I want to see the robots come in. That means we'll get higher wages if we have a well-run economy. For example, I keep talking about the Federal Reserve Board because right in front of our eyes, the Federal Reserve Board is trying to keep millions of people from having jobs by raising rates. Just to be clear, I, I don't mean they're going to raise rates in December and millions of people are losing their jobs. The whole point is if they raise rates over a period of time, they're going to be slowing the economy 
keeping at least hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people from getting jobs. Now, again, this might sound very mundane, but that is right in front of our face. So it sounds very strange to me for us to be worried about the possibility somewhere down the road, robots are going to be taking jobs in movie theaters or wherever else, when we see the Federal Reserve Board is right in front of our eyes taking jobs away from us. Let me make one other point that really gets lost in this. The amount of work involved in a job is not fixed. If we look in Europe, the average work year is about 25% less than is the United States. I'm talking about northern and western Europe, France, Germany, Sweden, Denmark. If we had the same number of hours in our work year as people in those countries do, we could snap our fingers and have one-third more jobs. So I'm just really not worried about not, us not having enough jobs in the economy. I, I'm really worried about bad economic management. I'm not worried that robots are going to take our jobs. Well, are you worried about a kind of hollowing out of the middle? I mean, uh, you know, one of the no, things... No, there are two. No. I would say it's overwhelmingly been a story of policy, not a story uh, of, of uh, technology. Uh, a few of my friends, Heidi Sherholtz, Larry Michelle, and John Schmidt, actually looked at that, that story. There's an economist at MIT, David Otter, is associated with it. They reviewed his work, and they found it actually doesn't hold at all for the last decade. In fact, Otter now concedes that. So you've seen a, a fall in the share of jobs at both the middle and top end. So the idea that somehow there's something intrinsic to technology that's going to get rid of jobs at the middle, uh, I, I really there, there's really just no basis for that. You know, And if you look very concretely, a lot of the very high-end jobs, uh, doctors, a lot of what doctors do can be replaced by diagnostic technology. Uh, lawyers, we have software that do legal searches. That could replace much of the work that lawyers do. Um, so you go down the list of you know very high-end jobs, and much of theirs vulnerable to technology, if not more so than those in the middle. You just described some concrete situations in which uh, work that's done by professionals right now could be done by machines or robots or programs. So let me ask Jay Hughes, should we be comforted by the numbers that Dean Baker keeps giving us, or uh, do these actual realities raise very specific and new questions? Well, I think part of the perspective is that we're – do you believe that we're on the cusp of a new kind of technological innovation? And McKinsey and Deloitte and uh, uh, the, the authors at Oxford, uh, Frey and Osborne, they all point to a series of technological innovations that are underway now, which could potentially automate about half of the employment in the United States, Europe, Japan, other countries – and um, and if the labor costs continue to rise, then it, it continues the trend that we already see where investment in capital is more productive than investment in human beings. Now, Dean and I agree about a lot of the prescriptions about what we should be doing. We should be, in fact, investing in higher education. We should be shortening the work week and strengthening the social safety net and so forth. But if you think that these technology changes are going to eventually begin to structurally eliminate uh, unemployment. And even if, it, even if it doesn't in the long run, even if in 50 years we figure out something new way to sell our souls that are, are different than we can currently imagine, the period of transition is going to be so painful. I mean, the reason that the Luddites had to smash those or tried to smash those machines is because they were, in fact, losing their jobs to machines. I, Dean Baker, I mean, it, it does seem as though we need to have more of a conversation than just what the numbers are, what the Fed is doing, what productivity was uh, from the 1940s to the 1970s, because the weather statistics can tell you that it's very unlikely to rain. You could still be standing in the rain. In fact, you know, you enumerated some jobs, uh, right, some professional jobs right there that, as you say, can be done by other machines. Do we know the path through which professionals or low-wage workers or middle-wage workers are going to travel into new jobs as these new as these as their old jobs become roboticized 
Well, I don't think we know the path, but I don't think we ever knew the path. And again, just to put this in some context, we've been here before. So just, I, I don't know if we saw the exact same study, but I, I saw a projection showing that, you know, up to 50% of the jobs we have in the economy today are vulnerable to automation or replacement by technology over the next two decades. And I looked at that and I got my calculator out and guess what? That came to 3% annual productivity growth, basically what we had during the 47 to 73 period. So, again, none of this is scaring me. What scares me is the possibility that we don't have the right economic policies. And that is a very real concern because, you know, we've had very high unemployment, a very weak recovery, primarily because we have people in, in Congress and positions of political power who have this, you know, to my view, absolutely bizarre fear about budget deficits, which literally makes no sense because, again, you know, it, it, this sounds kind of bizarre, but this is the world we're in, where on the one hand, we're worried about having too few jobs. That's a conversation we're having right now. On the other hand, we're worried that somehow we're going to be spending too much money, creating too much demand in the economy that we won't be able to fill. That's the story of budget deficits. That's literally exactly the story of budget deficits. Now, either one of those is in principle possible. So in other words, we could be in a situation where we're spending too much money and, you know, the, the classic story of inflation, you know, we have all this money chasing after goods and services that we can't possibly produce. We could have that story. We could also have the story of too little demand that, you know, we're talking about here, that, you know, we end up, we don't have employment for people because there's not enough demand in the economy and a lot of us are sitting around with nothing to do. You can't have both at the same time. Those are completely at odds with each other. And I'm worried that because we have people in political positions who are phobic about the former concern that we're, we're going to have large deficits and inflation and you know too much money chasing too few goods and services, that we actually do end up with the latter problem, which to some extent is what we see today. There are not enough jobs. So, so I, I'm, these are very immediate issues of economic policy are kind of in front of my face. So I'm sorry if, again, I seem skeptical about this, but it seems a little strange to me about worrying about things that you know, frankly, we don't know. I mean, I, not to say that, you know, we don't have a lot of intelligent basis for, for speculating, but no, I don't know what the path of jobs will be 10 years from now. I mean, did anyone expect uh, cybersecurity would be a huge uh, job creator? You know, I, I have someone working on our website today because something's messed up on it, and, you know, who knows how long it will take them. Ask me 15 years ago whether that would have been a job. I never would have guessed that, you know. So, no, we don't know exactly what the path will look like 10, 15 years out, but but we never did. You know, the argument then is, Jay Hughes, I mean, the argument that he's also making is basically one for constant micro-adjustment of labor policy. And you so you look at some countries that seem to be better at this than other countries. So Germany you know, keeps its employment pretty low. They seem to be very good at apprenticeships programs, training, stuff like that, getting uh, the young workforce ready for the job that doesn't exist now but might exist in five to ten year uh, increments. Is that enough? Or, or I mean, I, I sense in that you see, once again, a kind of paradigm shift where micro adjustments uh, or even medium adjustments wouldn't be enough. Right. Well, just first to the point that there's a political affinity of uh, folks who want to distract attention from the inequality and the policies that create inequality for a technological argument. I agree. But if you look at the reports from McKinsey, Deloitte, Bank of America, other um, you know folks who are trying to tell the capitalist class what to how to prepare for the future, and they're saying that there's going to be technological unemployment, and they're saying that the way to 
uh, address this trend of technological unemployment is possibly to create a universal basic income to provide everyone uh, an expansion of the social welfare net. That doesn't sound like that they're really trying to distract from, you know, fundamental social technological change. The other part of this is that there, do you, are you committed to a notion that a linear set of trends from 1950 to 2000 really will tell us what to do from 2020 to 2040? Or do you think that there are going to be exponential and disruptive changes? We just look at what happened with genetic engineering. We've been expecting genetic engineering for 30, 40 years, and people were absolutely right. It wasn't coming. It was too slow. And suddenly we get CRISPR, 100 times cheaper, 100 times more effective. And we need to suddenly figure out what we're going to do about a world in which genetic engineering is really on the table. So if there is, in fact, these kinds of changes, and it's not just artificial intelligence, it's things like a 3D printing. If 3D printing really comes into force, then everything that happens between the invention of a, of a thing and the, and the printing of a thing, all the, the making of stuff and the moving of stuff around suddenly becomes into question. If self-driving cars and self-driving trucks really come into force, a lot of, you know, five million jobs could be on the line. All these things have to be prepared for and, and with anticipatory policy governance. Well, one argument that people uh, from your world will, would sometimes make it is make about what some of the stuff that you just said is that a lot of what you're describing also allows people to opt out of certain capitalist cycles, right? You get your solar panels, get your 3D printer, and uh, you know with a lot and the cost of things, the cost of actually living, as opposed to the cost of living, actually drops down in a situation like that. That in fact, you know, Dean is saying. Well, well, maybe we don't need to work as many hours or as many days and weeks and months per year. And in fact, maybe we actually also would be consuming at a different kind of rate in an environment full of roboticized and automated changes. Well, this is part of the techno-utopian vision that I'm a little bit critical of. I mean, part of the answer that comes out of Silicon Valley is don't worry about uh, robots taking the jobs because technological manna from heaven will fall and, and we'll all have free stuff and our, our magic nanoprinters will, will make free stuff in our houses. I don't think that that's a realistic scenario. I think we do need to have social structural policy changes that uh, make sure that everyone gets fed and, and that there's investment in higher education because part of the transition here, as you point out, is that there will be still jobs that are immune to whatever robots uh, can't possibly do yet, and we need to be training people for those. We, need, we, can't, we shouldn't train people for being a, a narrow occupation like a phlebotomist. We should have commitments to broad liberal education that allows people to develop the kind of creative, social, emotive, uh, historical, philosophical skills that will be immune to these occupations. And Germany is a good example because Germany has a higher investment in robotics per capita, but they have fewer hours uh, working per year. One of the policy changes that they made is to have more egalitarian social policies and to shorten the work year and the work life. So, Dean Baker, I mean, we could carry this even further into kind of Bernie Sanders territory and say, if, in fact, we had a situation where labor became worth less, and I know that you don't necessarily at all grant that proposition, but labor became worth less because machines could do so much more. Capital became that much more valuable. Just owning stuff turns out to be an even better deal than it is now. It's a pretty good deal as things stand. That starts to argue for maybe something closer to the social democracy, socialist democracies that we see in Scandinavia, the ones that Bernie Sanders likes so much. What's your reaction? Well, I agree with that, you know, and I agree with a lot of things we just heard. You know, I'm all for, you know, spending more on higher ed. You know, Bernie Sanders has come out for free college education. Everyone else is going, oh, we can't possibly afford that. Well, I'd love to see us have free college education. Again, I think there'll be a little lift in the current political environment, but but I, I think that'd be a great thing. 
And, you know, again, the idea that, you know, we have technology that could do all these things for us that we now require people to do and it's going to liberate us from mundane jobs, that should be a world in which we all have much more security, uh, much, you know, higher at least guaranteed incomes. Point on basic income, I mean, just to be clear, I'd be fine with that, but I'm sitting here in Washington where we're having a big fight about protecting food stamps for people. So I just, you know, you know, again, it just gets to, you know, what what's politically viable in the world. And what I worry about is that you can get caught on a policy that, you know, might, maybe a lot of us would agree, basic income's a good policy, but shop that around the House and Senate, I don't think you'll get very far. So you have a policy that, you know, might in the abstract sound very good. I know uh, Thomas Piketty's great book, you know, Capital for the 21st Century, mm-hmm. he advocates a global wealth tax. I can probably get a lot of foundations who would give my institute tons of money to study global wealth tax. Talk, about, talk to them about uh, pressuring the Federal Reserve Board. No, no money for that. So I worry that you can get caught up on things that may in principle be very good policies. I mean, again, I, I'm not knocking basic income at all. I think it'd be a very good idea. It's just that I don't see that happening in the foreseeable future, given the politics of where we are today. Of course, the last radical socialist to really flirt with that idea and do more than flirt with it was uh, that uh, tremendous uh, red Richard M. Nixon in 1969, the eighth month of his presidency. He actually proposed replacing AFDC with something that basically was a basic income. It was called a family assistance plan. He described it as sort of a floor below which you cannot fall. Uh, What I'm proposing is that the federal government build a foundation under the income of every American family with dependent children that cannot care for itself. Wherever in America that family may live, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But Dean Baker, you're absolutely right. It didn't get farther than Richard Nixon. They weren't willing to go with his radical liberal policies. So anyway, things have changed a bit. We'll take a little break. We'll come back after this. So we're talking about techno unemployment. Is it a real fear? Is it something that you have to plan for? Is it something that somebody else has to plan for? With us in studio, Jay Hughes, bioethicist and sociologist at Trinity College in Hartford, executive director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Dean Baker is with us by phone. He's co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, co-author of Getting Back to Full Employment, A Better Bargain for Working People. In one of the debates, uh, one of the more recent debates, Marco Rubio uh, was asked about Technological unemployment, the future of the job market. This is in the Fox Business News debate. Uh, Let's hear that and get your reactions. If I thought that raising the minimum wage was the best way to help people increase their pay, I would be all for it. But it isn't. If you raise the minimum wage, you're going to make people more expensive than a machine. And that means all this automation that's replacing jobs and people right now is only going to be accelerated. Here's the best way to raise wages. Make higher education faster and easier to access, especially vocational training. For the life of me, I don't know why we have stigmatized vocational education. Welders make more money than philosophers. We need more welders and less philosophers. Now, uh, fortuitously for us, the day after that debate, we had already had a long scheduled show on philosophers. So we had Shelley Kagan and Mike Lynch and a whole bunch of other philosophers in, in here to respond to that. But James, I want you to respond to the to the notion that you don't want to make people more expensive than machines. Right now, that I don't know. My dean may see it uh, differently, but right now it sort of almost seems to me the opposite. Right, that there are some jobs that you just won't even bother using a machine for because the people are so cheap. I do want to make people more expensive than machines because my idea of the of the good future is one in which we eventually get rid of toil, but we have to have 
the social policies, the complementary social policies and political environment that will make sure that people get fed in the meantime. But on the particular uh, case of, of plumbers and uh, and those kinds of occupations versus philosophers, I think there's an argument for both. And uh, plumbers is one of the kinds of occupations that it's pretty difficult to imagine robots taking over anytime soon. And philosophy turns out to be actually a pretty good investment for a lot of undergraduates. They end up earning a lot, uh, usually because of further education. But um, but if we imagine a future in which there's rapid turmoil in the job environment and where people are constantly trying to upskill into jobs that are uh, that have high cognitive and creative investment, philosophy is a perfectly good preparation for that. The kind of things we want to avoid are the jobs that are so narrow and so technical that they're easily automated. Dean, uh, obviously the Rubio argument, uh, as <laughs> it really is a way of getting your foot on the neck of low-wage workers. Oh, well, if we wage, raise your wages at all, then it will be better to replace you with machines. What do you think of that kind of threat? Well, it's interesting because, you know, this is actually an area where there's a lot of research. I have no idea if uh, Senator Rubio is familiar with it or not. But, you know, modest increases in the minimum wage and the levels we're at now are likely to have little or no effect on employment. I feel very comfortable saying that. So when I'm saying modest, you know, raising it to, say, $12 an hour over the next five years. Um, I think there's, I'm not going to say quite a consensus, but I think most economists who study the issue would agree with that. Higher increases will see more, you know, more job impact. But part of the story, you know, saying that that will cause workers to be replaced by machines, that, to my view, is something we want. You know, this is the story of productivity growth. So, again, I'm not knocking productivity growth. I want productivity growth. And, again, I'm in meetings with economists. The Pearson Institute for International Economics just had a meeting uh, last week, two weeks ago, a lot of top economists to work on this issue. They're asking why productivity growth has been so slow. And, you know, I think one of the ways, one of the reasons for that is because we have low wages, you know, so we have a lot of people working in restaurants because they're cheap. Um, I was in a Walmart a month back and I, I was kind of struck that you have all these people just, you know, you walk through the door and they go, oh, what do you want? You know, where do you want to go? You know, well, they do that, you know, they could have these people that are just directing, you know, to your aisle, which you know, is convenient. But the, the reason they could do that is because they're real cheap. You know, if you had to pay people $15, $20 an hour, they probably wouldn't do that. So we want an economy where labor is not cheap. And, you know, just to give some benchmarks here, if the minimum wage had kept pace with productivity growth over the last four decades, it would be about $18 an hour today. So we wouldn't even be talking about $15 an hour in 2020. We'd be talking about $18 an hour in 2015. So, you know, that's, to my view, a strong economy that we, we have – a dynamic labor market where we have wages rising in step with productivity growth. So what that means is as we we see the machines replacing people, workers get some of that benefit in higher wages, which they'll then spend on other things, and they'll get some of that benefit in in shorter work weeks, shorter work years. They'll get paid vacation, paid uh, family leave. And that's, you know, a good story that we did see in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And then I would say because of really poor economic policies, we've not seen that over the last three decades. Part of the explanation for why there's that break in uh, the connection between productivity growth and the growth of wages is that it's become more profitable to invest in machines than in human beings. Um, but I also think, you know, an important, you've pointed to an important part of the picture. So we've had the growth of ATMs, and at the same time, we've had a modest growth in the number of bank tellers. And one of the part of that explanation is that bank tellers are doing different things. We automated some of the dumb things that they used to do or the automatable things they used to do, and now they're doing more creative and higher uh, investment things like working with people on their loans. But a part of the complementarity of 
Artificial intelligence, information communication technologies also means that fewer workers can now reach more people. And so we have things like MOOCs, you know, where a professor could potentially teach 10,000 students and wipe out a whole bunch of other professors' jobs. Um, we have uh, telemedicine that has the same capacity. So uh, we have Amazon, which through economies of scale is able to wipe out all kinds of uh, brick-and-mortar jobs. And I think that that's a part of the picture as well, is that complementarity isn't just the expansion of particular workers' uh, capacities in jobs with and, and not changing, you know, changing the lump of labor but not changing the number of jobs. It also is going to change the number of jobs. You've always had a system that picks winners and losers, or at least in which winners and losers get sorted out. I may not like it. I might be happier in Norway, but that's the way that it works. So, Dean Baker, the argument in that situation is figure out what's precarious and don't do it. Figure out what, in fact, um, complements the developing technologies, uh, ways in which you can prosper, and you get to be one of the winners. Is that a good enough answer? Can we live with that? We could live with part of that, but again, we do need systems of support, which we have, but they're very inadequate in the United States. They're better, you know, uh, Jay had mentioned Germany, much better in Germany, much better in most European countries to help support people through transitions because, you know, in a vibrant economy, we expect things to change. And again, this has always been the case. Maybe it'll be hap happening faster in the future. Again, I'm skeptical of that. I would like to see it. But, you know, in any case, we've always had situations where jobs that were there, you know, 10 years ago aren't there today. That means those people have to look for new work. So we have to support people through transitions. And, you know, again, Germany, Europe tends to do that much better than we do that in the United States. We tell people that they're on their own. And that's a really big problem, particularly when in many cases we promote the transitions. For example, I mean, the, the displacement, for example, trade. Our trade deals have quite explicitly been designed to displace large numbers of manufacturing workers by putting them in direct competition with low-paid workers in, in China and other developing countries. And people sometimes talk about that was an accidental byproduct. No, that was the point. I could give you the argument as to why that's a good thing for the economy. Arguably it is. But it's a really bad thing for the workers who lose their jobs. So when we do things like that, we have to be prepared to help workers adjust, develop new skills, develop the ability to work in different areas. But, you know, we've not had economic policy that facilitates that, you know, certainly over the last three decades. The concern, I guess, for a lot of people, I mean, to me, this this makes a lot of sense, is that you have an apparatus that's constantly preparing and re-preparing the workforce, Jay, for the new technological challenges and just shifts in the society. I mean, it really makes sense right now to have uh, jobs in sort of gerontology and geriatric services because there's just there's going to be a lot more 90-year-old people around than there ever have been before. It's going to make sense to, to work in those fields. But there's a different kind of picking winners and losers that can go on, right? So right now we pick winners and losers because you're just standing there. You figure it out. As Dean says, you're kind of alone. You know, you can look down the road and go, well, I just read something about Jackson Labs. Maybe I should be getting into biosciences somehow and then maybe try to find somebody who can help you do that somewhere in the public education system. But basically, you're a lonely actor. There's no real plan for you. On the other hand, Americans flip out when there is a plan, and that starts to conjure up these dystopian scenarios where you're kind of identified early on. You're going to be going over there, whereas Tristan over here, he's going over here. That freaks people out, too. Well, the critics of central planning have a point, which is that if you look at the history of uh, – labor economists trying to predict the future of the labor market. It hasn't been very successful. I mean, 15 years ago, you would have advised a young man, go and get a computer science degree, and then all of a sudden the job market for computer scientists uh, collapses. Um, one of my favorite reports every year is the, um, the Social Security uh, trustees uh, release a report where they predict what the labor market and the population is going to look like in 2080. 
And I think, you know, that's just that's science fiction as far as any, any of us can be concerned. There are a lot of other things going on. One of the other things I just want to put on the table is that um, there's already a trend of uh, old age dependency ratio, ratio changing, which is that the fertility rate's declining a lot faster than people thought it would, and we're living a lot longer than people expected in the past. And as a consequence, a, sh- a shrinking number of workers are paying taxes to support a growing number of older people. This is going to, if this begins to accelerate as CRISPR and uh, the metformin trial of uh, anti-aging drugs is beginning to suggest, if this begins to accelerate for technological reasons, then we're going to have an even bigger social crisis of inequality, a generational inequality of of this kind of support. I think that that's going to then be contributed to by technological unemployment because we're going to have this debate. Well, all these old people are living to 120. They should be still in the labor force. We shouldn't be allowing them to retire at 65. Yeah, but what jobs are they going to get? I'm a big fan of the Social Security Trustees Report also because I've done a lot of work on Social Security. That's exactly the opposite argument. So, So the story that we're going to have a problem paying for our seniors um, all these retired people is one where we have too few workers. This is a story that you know we have all of, you know all of us old timers. I'm a baby boomer. I'll be retired before too long. You know, we're all going to be sitting around there waiting for someone to change our bedpan, but there's no one to do it because the younger generations are smaller. These are 108 degrees at odds. So again, we can have the problem. You can tell the story that we don't have enough workers. I don't think that's true. But you can tell that story, and that is the Social Security story, the Social Security, you know, scare story that we're going to have all these seniors there and no young workers. You could also have the story that, you know, we have all this great technology that's displaced workers. But those don't go together. Those are 180 degrees at odds. It's like, oh, we wake up in the morning and we go, God, it's really hot today. And then we go, yeah, and it's so cold, too. It could be hot, it could be cold, but it can't be both hot and cold. It's got to be one or the other. So if we're worried that we aren't going to have any jobs, we should be very happy that, you know, we don't have to worry about Social Security because we have so much productivity growth that, you know, there's plenty of people to change our bedpans. You know, so, so one or those others can be true. They can't both be true. All right. We're going to take a break now. We're going to say thanks to Dean Baker. Uh, his book is uh, he's the co-author of Getting Back to Full Employment, A Better Bargain for Working People. When we come back, as I say, we're going to go to the front lines of uh, automation with A.G. Russell Automated Assembly Systems in Bristol, Connecticut. Have you ever seen a hot robot dance in France? Several human life forms participated in the making of this show. Josh Nalea, whose rental history I am currently examining, produced it with Kion Wolf to several alternative lifestyle magazines. Greg Hill did the all-important work of maintaining the WNPR Colin Twitter account and contributed some exemplary acting in the introduction. I think it is fair to say that the only person exhibiting true genius on this show on a consistent basis is Greg Hill. Our interns are Nate Gagnon and Zach Lasala scheduled for termination. Zach's life energies will power the Robot Collective. The part of Bill Curry was played by BB-8. For show pages, articles, and a peek at the all-robot crew of Here and Now, visit WNPR.org. Tomorrow, a show about the math and psychology behind what you call coincidences. Back to the humans.
In the studio, uh, Jay Hughes, bioethicist and sociologist at Trinity College in Hartford. Uh, He is the author of Citizen Cyborg, Why Democratic Societies Must Respond to the Redesigned Human of the Future. Uh, Mark Brzezinski is joining us now, president of Arthur G. Russell Automated Assembly Systems in Bristol, Connecticut. Mark, just real quick, explain what A.G. Russell does. Well, we design and manufacture specialty equipment for high-volume manufacturers and assembly and packaging systems for uh, high-volume industry. So one of the things we've been talking about in this conversation here, or basically implying all along, is there are some things you can automate and some things you can't, some things that robots can do and some things robots can't do. Do you think about it that way, or is everything or almost anything potentially at least improvable through automation? The vast majority of things are it's possible to improve, but uh, it has to be cost-justifiable. And the cost of developing technology is high, and if the uh, if the payback isn't there, it typically doesn't get done. So where specifically are the new frontiers for you and for people to do what you do? The products that are being produced are getting more and more complex, and that's leading to more and more complex machinery required to put these things together. It's really market-driven demand as uh, what needs to be produced is typically developed. So you're saying that it's more likely the case that machines that can put together other pretty complicated machines are the growth area. Yes, but typically there needs to be volume to justify the uh, the expenditure and a lifespan of the product. If it's a short-lived product, typically you don't have the, uh, the longevity of the equipment to to get the payback. Is there any way in which, I mean, okay, so we anybody who follows political discourse hears people say and, and, and knows anyway that certain kinds of manufacturing jobs disappeared from America. They went to seek out cheap labor markets. Is there any way in which jobs are reshoring, jobs are coming back as a result of this? Absolutely. As the, uh, the uh, offshore labor markets are uh, increasing in cost, it makes the onshoring of uh, the jobs through automation a lot more uh, justifiable. Part of the change that uh, technological unemployment, I think, is going to have on the world is that the global sustainable development model is that we you know, transfer manufacturing jobs to the developing world. But China now has a campaign of replacing uh, a million workers in some districts with robots. You know, The Shenzhen district is investing in a huge uh, robotics campaign. And that's because labor costs have, are increasing in China, India, and other places. And that's causing the the relative productivity of investing uh, in something in an automated job in the United States more productive. But the people who do an automated job, the, the human beings who do an automated job in the United States are a fraction of the jobs of the, that used to be created by the same kind of manufacturing in the United States. You know, Mark, uh, if you, I don't know if you have kids or grandchildren or anything like that, but well, you're, you're, okay. <laughs> so what do you say to them? Let's say they don't want to go into the family business. What do you say to them? Do, do you, can you paint a fairly bright picture for them about employment prospects in the United States during their adult lifetimes? Absolutely, but uh, it's going to require the uh, skills which are demanded of the, the modern technological world. It's all about education. Technology creates as many jobs as it replaces, but there are higher skilled and higher technical jobs which um, require the education in order to uh, perform. So let's say one of your uh, grandchildren or children says, well, get specific. You know, what should I do? What are like three or four things that aren't going to be automated, that are going to be growth fields? What would you tell them? I'd tell them to go into a field that wouldn't be automated. I'd tell them to get into a technical field that automation was uh, demanding. Electricians, skilled machine assemblers, machinists, programmers. 
these systems have are computer controlled and require vast amounts of code to be able to make them to work. So computer skills and uh, and programming skills are in great demand. In general, the more creativity a job demands, and this is one of the directions that Frey and Osborne, these uh, economists at Oxford who have predicted 50% of uh, unemployment of, through automation, one of the directions they've gone is to say, okay, what are the jobs that have the most creativity and how can we encourage people to go towards those jobs? I just have to point out that there's, there are some folks in artificial intelligence and robotics working on every one of those fields. You know, uh, Any particular thing you want to point to, any kind of human and communication skill, any kind of creative task, a scientific discovery, everything is being a potentially automatable, um, but it's just some things more difficult than others. And Mark, that's a process that you effectively support, right? Uh, A.G. Russell supports uh, a team in the so-called first robotics competition. Aren't you supporting a team that's doing a purpose-driven robot? And tell us what that is. Well, the the uh, first robotics competition is a uh, a major movement in the uh, in the world education system, not just the United States. It started here, but um, to get kids uh, interested in science and technolo- technology and uh, applying those skills in a, a competition similar to a sports team, but it's a technology competition. It's got great interest, and we've gotten involved to try to selfishly to uh, create a pipeline of, of talent for our business. That's what? one thing that we're faced with is a talent gap. So, yeah, one thing you should go into is robotics, right? So what, what would a purpose-driven robot do? What would the robot do that you're interested well, in? Well, I think there's, um, you know, there's a misconception that robots all look like R2-D2. Um, they really are machines that are computer-controlled and designed to do a, a specific purpose. The first robotic competition, every year they have a new challenge, and they need to design a machine to meet that challenge. Typically, these are remotely operated they call them robots, but they are typically a machine. So what's the part of it that's purpose-driven? Well, every year they get a challenge, and last year it was called uh, Recycle Rush. They had trash cans that had to be moved around and uh, specific items that had to be placed in trash cans and totes that needed to be stacked. So those were three tasks that needed to be done, and they had to have a strategy of how they were going to score points, and they developed a machine to be able to um, manipulate those items and score points, and that's how the competition was, was run. So they don't know until the the uh, launch of the competition what it's going to be and what kind of machine they're going to have to design and build. Jay Hughes, uh, when I see a purpose-driven robot to you, what do you expect those teams to be working on? <laughs> well, we're in, in ethics and in technology ethics, we're especially interested in the, the question of self-driven robotics, self-driven artificial intelligence. Because there's questions like, you know, what, how do you put an uh, autonomous killing machine in the battlefield and exp- and get it to do what you really want it to do and not do things you don't want it to do? Um, should a, an autonomous car, uh, you know, run over five people instead of one or one person instead of five? You know, there's all these kind of interesting ethical questions. Um, I, I see that on a trajectory eventually towards um, something that's that we, you know, we would look upon as a, as a, a human-like mind. Um, or something even stranger than a human-like mind. And we're just beginning by uh, putting this kind of autonomy into machines. But um, but clearly, this is also a part of the technological unemployment picture, the degree to which we can... So, for instance, if, you know, in Japan, because they have this huge labor shortage because they don't want to let a bunch of, uh, you know, foreign workers in and they have uh, very few kids, they're trying to figure out how do you put robots in the home to take care of this rapidly aging population. And you want that robot to have enough autonomy to know when to force grandma to eat her vegetables and when not to and when to get her to take her pills and when not to. Um, and so there's a, a lot of complicated rules that have to go into that. 
Um, you know, um, so, uh, Mark, very quickly then, sort of the future, uh, I know you, so, you, I think you probably agree a lot with Jay that robots that can see and figure out how to solve problems that have enough a- AI to do that are the future. Yes, there's a, um, a competition going on in the university system now. My alma mater, WPI, is in the, uh, in the finals. It's a DARPA competition. It's actually a semi-autonomous robot which goes into an unknown situation and has to make decisions and it's typically like a rescue situation where it has to go in and, and find an objective and go in and it's camera driven and has uh, you know a dozen computers programmed to, to make autonomous decisions so that that technology is coming how rapidly it's going to come that technology is extremely expensive and has to be justifiable and some things are just better done by a human and probably always will be. I don't think there's a strong commercial case for um, a, a toaster that argues with you about whether to give you your toast. So I think one of the things that's it's interesting is we all expect eventually, you know, something like the uh, that little paper clip to, that, you know, tries to constantly advise you in, mm-hmm. in Windows uh, or Word. Clippy, yeah. We expect something like that, but the, but we hated that. <laughs> and so I think we, what we really want is uh, tools that are extensions of human will rather than something that really thinks for itself. But to the extent that we want something that can actually be an extension of our will, it has to be able to model our will in the world. We have to end here. But um, first of all, I, I also wonder whether there's a market for a car that, although it's been promised to protect you as it auto drives you around, also has to make the kind of decision you're talking about. Do I drive directly into the deer or do I swerve and hit three people? Uh, and if my job mainly is to protect my owner, that's what my owner bought the car for. Right. It'll be an interesting question. But just very quickly, Jay, because we don't have a lot of time, but I know one of the other questions is, you know, are we making a false demarcation? Is it going to be more the case that probably at the level of brain interface, we're going to see something like the, what's it called, the power lifter suit that Ripley puts on in Alien, right? She she climbs into what looks like a robot and she operates it initially to stack big uh, cartons and stuff like that and then to, to fight bad monsters. But that, in fact, what's going to happen is that we in the machine are going to become less discrete entities. Yeah, that's certainly the optimistic scenario as far as I'm, I'm concerned, because I do think that there are some distinct risks in the future of, um, of really autonomous robotics, and we could lessen those risks by making a direct connection between human brains and machines. All right. We're going to have to stop there. Thanks so much to Mark Brzezinski. He's president of Arthur G. Rosenthal, A.G. E. Rosenthal, that's the New York Times, uh, the president of A.G. Russell uh, Automated Assembly Systems in Bristol, Connecticut. Jay Hughes is a bioethicist and sociologist at Trinity and the author of Citizen Cyborg, Why Democratic Societies Must Respond to the Redesigned Human of the Future. Thanks very much to, to Josh Nalea, who produced this show, and we'll be back tomorrow. It's double U N P R. U U N P R. No, I see how this is confusing, but it's double U N P R. U U N P R. Double, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs>